Welcome to the Opinionated Optimist Podcast, the podcast that reviews anything that's worth reviewing. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Opinionated Optimist Podcast. I'm your host, Brian. All right, uh, I know it's been a while since I recorded, uh, but tonight I've got a very special episode for you. Uh, tonight I have star of stage and screen actor patrick roper uh welcome to the program patrick how are you doing oh i'm doing great how are you doing i'm very good and thank you for doing the podcast uh yeah, so let's, absolutely. let's start out so when did you first realize you wanted to be an actor i probably uh sorted that out when i was about five years old um i think i was i was probably watching sesame street or electric company or some something like that at the time and my i remember my mother walking in um well she was puttering around the house and just the question came to her is like what uh you know out of curiosity what do you what what do you think you might want to you know do when you grow up and i i looked at the television set and I was probably pointing at like morgan freeman on the screen <laughs> in the electric company and said i i want to do that because I, I, I just had this weird sense, I think, even at an early age, that um, actors were adults that could get paid to play make-believe. Um, and that just sounded like an awesome thing to me. So um, that, that idea never really got out of my head. So I uh, kept on going and <laughs> um, decided to... Uh, to study it as I got older. So, all right. So, yeah. So, once you actually get the idea in your head, how does one actually go and pursue, I guess, get the training necessary to be a serious actor? Um, I, of course, I mean, I think like most people, I had no clue where to start. Um, my parents were pretty open-minded about the idea and um they were they were very interested in theater and film and whatnot so they kind of exposed me to a lot of um probably fairly for my age fairly highbrow um theatrical pieces um a lot of masterpiece theater and shakespeare and and that sort of thing and that was i suppose their idea was to expose me to theater as much as possible um and luckily uh in my hometown our school system had a very excellent acting and theater program um so i started studying seriously when i was about 13 i guess okay um so at that point when do you actually start getting acting jobs once you start the serious training at 13? So, um, I studied and I studied, you know, trains in the classics, uh, Greek, Shakespeare, Commedia, um, restoration theater, that sort of thing. And, and did those types of shows for years. By the time I, graduated from that program at 17 i had a an extensive enough background and the the will and the drive um to break out on my own and i started a theater company um when i was about yeah 17 18 years old okay so we started uh me i just got together a bunch of friends and we we had no idea exactly what to do, but we uh, we started running professional theater and actually did a pretty good job of it for yeah. a couple of few years. <laughs> so I noticed you said uh, it takes a lot of resilience. Uh, I guess what you just got to uh, put the nose off and keep going till you get the positive result. Absolutely, yeah. You. Um, this is a very it's a very challenging profession, which is one reason that I like it. Um, I mean, certainly there's a lot of interesting variety in it, but 
it's very difficult to get into and to do well and consistently and certainly very difficult to do professionally. Um, so I, I've always gravitated towards it, I think primarily because it was so challenging. Okay. <clears throat> um, so can you tell the audience some of the uh, television shows and films you've been in? Uh, so let's see in terms of, uh, stuff that I've been in since I moved to Georgia, okay. um, cause I did, I did a lot. I did a lot of theater, uh, in Seattle. I'm from Seattle originally. So I did a lot of, a lot of theater and, and some little in the indie films there. Okay. Nothing, nothing anybody would know <laughs> or remember, but, uh, and I took a break for a little while, did other things, and then I moved to Georgia about 10 years ago, just as the film industry was starting to boom. And so started... about the time that Tyler Perry started building his uh, studios, the studios there in Atlanta? Yeah, yeah, it was about, as I recall, it was about the same, yeah, it was about the right time um, that he was doing all that. And I didn't move here initially with the idea of getting back into acting, but I kind of figured i might as since that was my background i might as well give it a go so i I, you know, I studied again for a couple of years just to get a feel for it again because i'd taken a, a bit of time off and then yeah. um my first i, I probably when I, once i got in a, uh, an agent i think i did in the first year about a hundred auditions or so without getting much traction and then I got a small part in the film Killer Man uh, with, uh, uh, well, I worked, I worked opposite Zlako Boric, which was awesome. Um, mm -hmm. Most people, most people would probably recognize him, but he's, you know, that name isn't necessarily familiar to most, most folks, but um, he was in the movie 2012 played a Russian oligarch. He's a you know big man with a big, deep, booming voice. Um, so I worked with him, which was great. And uh, so I did that film. And then I booked, let's see, I booked a, within a few months, I booked a major supporting role in the movie Emperor. Okay. Um, uh, played a... Uh, played a slave overseer so i was basically one of the main villains in the film and uh then right after that i booked a recurring part on the show florida girls that filmed here in savannah all the all of these films filmed in savannah um yeah. all these films and shows and uh florida girls originally when i auditioned for that it was just supposed to be a, a day player gig one day gig but they liked my audition so much that they actually expanded the character uh so i ended up getting four episodes out of it oh cool yeah and it was it was it was fun it's kind of a funny it's a it was a it's a comedy so it was a a little a little different for me i tend to play a lot of dramas um so I did that, and then, um, let's see, I think after that was Fear Street uh, 1666 for Netflix, mm -hmm. and that was, a, that was a small part in that, playing a, uh, one of the Union Townsmen. I was the, the guy who pulls the dead dog out of the well. Okay, I remember the part. Yeah, um, so I did that, and then then I did. Uh, let's see. Then I did Tyler Perry's Sisters. Um, had two episodes on that, um, and that was during that show was the first show that shot, sort of reopened up during the pandemic. So they shot it completely under uh, the confines of the what they called the quarantine bubble. Right. Um, so they, I went up to Tyler Perry Studios. You know, of course, we were tested constantly. Um, we had to live there for the duration of the time that um, that we were shooting. So I, I was there for a couple of weeks. 
um for you know for for all of the i think i think we shot my part in about an hour um but i was there for two about two weeks um okay. hanging out and uh waiting to waiting to film um, yeah i hear a lot of times when it's acting like you're standing there all day shooting the same scenes like hundreds and hundreds of times is that pretty much what you would say too until they get like yeah the right i mean it's it, it's often mostly in, in television and film these days I and mean, for the most part they're usually doing anywhere from two to five takes on average okay i mean of course you hear you hear those legends about guys like you know kubrick and fincher that do you know 170 takes of things that's that's exactly. pretty rare um and generally you rarely go over 10 takes unless something technically is going very wrong um but my, my experience, particularly with television, because television shoots so fast, is that usually you're only getting one or two takes. Right, and they have less of a budget compared to the films. I see exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And also you yeah, mentioned... Tyler Perry, Tyler Perry in particular, he's uh, he's pretty notorious for shooting just like one take. Um, okay. <laughs> so you have, to, you have to kind of be on, on your game. I know you mentioned about usually... Uh, comedies are very rare for you do you feel like sometimes because of your size and all you're like typecast it to be like like the ruggish character yeah i mean there's definitely a part of that uh i do i do have actually pretty you know good sense of humor and good comedic timing right but yeah and just because of my size i'm six foot four and i have this sort of very very um you know, severe, pronounced, you know, bone structure and look to me. Um, so I, I tend to fit a lot of those intimidating characters very well. Kind of gotcha. Um, I know you mentioned this uh, recently, getting back to acting, you've done it mostly in the Southeast Savannah to be exact or Atlanta. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. What is the Southeast booming, I would say, uh, film industry like the original West Coast industry? Um, the nice thing about that I noticed over the years in the comparison between the two, I mean, uh, you know, West coast, LA in particular, it's, it's very, it's a different pace. I mean, that, that really is the big thing. Um, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's a faster sort of pace. Whereas here in the Southeast, we tend to be, we're more laid back yeah. about the slow approach. country like they call us, right? <laughs> yeah yeah we just tend to and you know and and there's you know there's obviously a very different lifestyle um a lot of people find you know we we certainly have a lot of people moving from places like la and new york to here and it's not just because of the opportunities of course the opportunities are great but some of a lot of it is for the lifestyle because there's just a lot of a lot of people just get tired of living in these big hectic cities and feel um like they want to try a slower pace and a you know smaller environment um which certainly for me I, I i didn't really want to live in atlanta because when i moved here i moved from seattle and huh? seattle and atlanta are about the same size and same sort of general pace well, except um, for seattle they know how to drive in the rain <laughs> yeah, yeah so i uh i chose savannah because it's yeah it's just a, a bit smaller um even more laid back uh it's very you know it's a very beautiful walkable city right have you done any other um work here in the southeast in the low country like charleston beaufort because to me it's all pretty much the same the same kind of downtown vibe with the cobblestone streets in Charleston, South Carolina as well. Yeah, I haven't I haven't actually gotten any um I haven't got any stuff up in South Carolina yet. I did just I just did let's see. I just filmed the show Panhandle, the pilot episode which was shot here. And uh that should be wrapping fairly soon, I think in the next couple of weeks. Huh? and then i shot up in atlanta 
um uh oh goodness what was it called <laughs> it's funny you, you know you, you you do so many of these and sometimes they just become a bore um right. uh yeah for some reason the name of that are you thinking about the big door prize yeah yeah that one yeah that um shot that one up in atlanta and then uh about a month ago i shot i was up in louisville kentucky uh shooting um a film called red right hand with orlando bloom uh any uh idea when that was going to be that they was going to be released or is it still post-production yeah i'm not sure I'm not sure about the dates on any of those television <clears throat> television has a tendency to go usually a bit faster than film. So if I had to take a shot in the dark, I would assume the two television series that I did would probably come out either towards the end of this year or beginning of next year would be my guess. Okay. Um, the film and it, that was, you know, the film that I did, Red Right Hand, that, you know, it's a relatively indie film, you know, which is a, you know, we're not talking about a massive budget movie. Right. Um, that, you know, most indie films tend to come out within the, about the one to two year window, um, sometimes a little faster, but it kind of depends. Um, most of them obviously struggle with financing to do, you know, what they need to do at times and you know finishing funds and they they don't necessarily have the unlimited budgets of marvel and you know disney and all that so right. um but when you're talking about films like that you know or you know projects that in those big scales too i mean those those often take a couple of few years just because of special effects and right. everything else so sometimes it doesn't even matter how much money you throw at it yeah, since you mentioned Disney, so as an actor, uh, you know, with the pandemic going on and on, or hopefully wrapping up finally, uh, several films have gone straight to streaming like Disney Plus and HBO Max. So as an actor, does that make you fearful that the seeing movies in the big theater is going to go away? Or is it more of an opportunity to get the lesser known independent films out quicker to a broader audience? I'm I'm in favor of the streaming model. Um, I, I I certainly grew up watching movies in you know the theater and and have a nostalgia for that. But I also you know fully recognize that you know the the technology has changed and the way that the newer generations are viewing things changes. Um, and I like, you know, I, I, I like the accessibility now. Right. Um, I think it's, I think it's great. And certainly from an acting point of view, there's just tons more opportunity. Okay. Um, you know, back in the day when it was just, you know, three networks and, and whatever films were coming out, um, your opportunities as a, as a screen actor were kind of limited Okay. Whereas now we've got, you know, dozens upon dozens of, you know, streaming channels and they all need a lot of content. And, and so there's, there's just so much more opportunity. And, and also with the technology, you know, nowadays we audition most of the time, not in person. We usually uh, do self tapes at home or in a studio and turn our auditions in that way. So you're not, you don't as an actor now you don't have to necessarily be in a big city you don't have to necessarily live in atlanta or live in la or new york you can live kind of in the outskirts and tape your auditions and potentially uh be able to to get on board in these projects which is great yeah i can't think of the the, the title of the movie but i believe during the pandemic there was actually a film everybody shot it on zoom it was them just basically like almost like a zoom meeting they did and they pieced together like some horror story together you know special effects yeah yeah i seem to recall there was a there was one 
one pretty famous one that uh, I guess did pretty well at the festivals. And I seems like there was like there were a couple of people that did similar things, but yeah, there was one that and it was a horror film, like yeah, like you said, a horror film that did well, but I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, I can't the bug that I can't think of top. And I know once we done with the interview, it'll pop in my head like dang it. But yeah, I mean, technology is <laughs> definitely driving the industry into some cool new areas. Yeah, yeah, definitely. When I was uh, when I was starting in this whole thing, I remember my agent at the time had uh, called me. I was talking to her, and she had called me up and and said uh, that she was going to go do a workshop in what they were at the time referring to as internet casting. Okay. And it, it sounded really cool. I mean, you know, when she was explaining it to me, it's like, yeah, we'll have this, you know, they'll have this website up and they'll have a bunch of, you know, photos and, and you'll be able to tape auditions and send them in. I'm like, Oh, that sounds great. And you know, that would have been about the mid nineties. So before, you know, when the internet was still dial up and, you know terrible and slow mm-hmm. um they they were at least starting this concept uh so it was really it was refreshing because I, I took my i took a, a hiatus for a while not long after that and when i got back into it it was just it was cool to see that it had actually happened sure. um and particularly in the southeast uh one thing that we differ in that you know is a little bit a little bit more different than la for instance la still has largely preferred in-person auditions whereas the southeast i think because of how spread out we are um has favored these uh self-tapes so we 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 in the southeast are really really good at doing self-tapes Okay, so that definitely sounds like that was our benefit when it came to this recent time with the COVID and all, because you would think LA would be the opposite, because they would definitely be ahead. Yeah, of yeah. They it, it's funny to you know it was funny to see when the pandemic started and everything shut down, just watching being online and kind of watching people, particularly in LA, seeming it just seemed like they were struggling with the whole self tape thing, right um because they just weren't accustomed to it and here i mean we've been doing it now for 10 15 years so if you're learning acting right now in the southeast we are going to do a lot of focus on training people to do self-tapes okay um so at least we're really in the way in something that's how it works <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah i'm looking uh do you mind talking about some of your hobbies? I see two interesting ones that just jump out. So you're a master kilt, kilt maker. Yes, yes. I uh, I studied to be a kilt maker when I was a teenager. I uh, my mother actually taught me how to sew, so I had a sewing background. And uh, I had met a woman from Northern Ireland who had immigrated here. And she had made kilts over there for most of her life. And she was kind enough to teach me how to do this. So when I was an actor in Seattle, uh, that was ended up being my side gig was I would make kilts. And as it turns out, I started doing that really professionally about the time that movies like Braveheart and Rob Roy had come out so there was a massive boom in the kilt industry Mm -hmm. and eventually it kind of took over my acting like I was just making so much money that I uh I I couldn't ignore it and uh it ended up sort of taking taking my focus away from acting for a number of years so I I ended up being a full-time kilt maker and importer of Scottish and Irish goods for a while. Oh, awesome. Yeah, also, too, I mean, did you kind of incorporate that with your acting, too? Because I know there's props and costumists there, too, for all these, you know, brave hearts and stuff like that, like you mentioned, too. Yeah, I mean, I I, I did 
I have done some costuming uh, off and on over the years. Um, and I've also, particularly with the Scottish thing, I used to lecture a lot in Scottish history um, and particularly clothing. So I, I got a lot of gigs uh, working you know, with other plays and shows and, and mm -hmm. whatnot whenever they needed advisors to help them understand things about Scottish culture and the, and the outfits. So I, I, I did that for a while off and on as well. And has that actually uh, been pretty beneficial living around Savannah? Because most people don't realize we're the third biggest Irish population on the East coast. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, I, I don't, uh, I don't make kilts anymore, but. It, it, of course, it crosses my mind every now and then. It's like, yeah, I could probably do well if I <laughs> took yeah. up that, well, that gotta, again. I know they do the Renaissance fairs and stuff like down there too, I mean, marketplace or something. They can kill them just off of that, I bet you. Yeah, yeah. And kilts are, um, I mean, the what I made were the hardcore traditional kilts. So you're talking about you know, 100% wool, mm -hmm. all the, you know, correct family tartans that I would source out from the mills in Scotland. Um, kilts on average took me, once I got really, really good at it, it took an average of 20 to 25 hours to make one garment. They're all hand stitched. So there's 5,000 stitches per garment. Um, and very little of that ever gets touched by a sewing machine okay so um i was you know when i it, when i was doing well i was popping out about two a week okay yeah i have a, co a co-worker she's in a uh like a sewing guild so they do a lot of like blankets and stuff like that for their festivals and all so just yeah. hearing her talk about just that minimal of the sewing she does i, I imagine that took that much of a ton wow that's incredible yeah, yeah awesome. I, uh, I, I did it to the point where, I mean, I made, I think my guess, uh, guesstimate over a period of 16 years as I made about 2,500 give or take kilts oh, wow. um, that I chipped around the country and the world. Um, but after, I, I will say that after that many and my hands, my arms, my shoulders were just killing me. So yeah, I, uh, I, I took early retirement and, <laughs> and decided that I didn't want to be hunched over all my life. Okay. Now, another uh, hobby I see that, because uh, back in college, I almost did a marine biology degree. I did IT instead, but uh, I see you do some shark cage diving. I did, yeah. Uh, I, I did a trip to... Isla Guadalupe, I, I became kind of interested about a decade or so ago. Well, I should, I should qualify this. I, I've always been interested in nature and wildlife, you know, documentaries and things like that. My mother would and I would sit around and watch, you know, all these, you know, National Geographic and, and that sort of thing. Right. Shark and, Week and um, that too, a bit too, right? Yeah, Shark Week. And I, I, I just loved... I love those documentaries, but on the other hand, I was also kind of, I was one of those people. It's like, I, I want to go see this stuff. I want to actually go see it. So I started, I did a, a photo safari in India, um, for tigers. Huh. So I photographed tigers in India for a couple of weeks. And then about a year later, I did um, some safaris in Southern Africa. And then six months after that, I found a really smoking deal to go shark cage diving out in Mexico. So, and that's the place where I went and the people that I went with were actually the, uh, the same people that originally brought the Discovery Channel out to Isla Guadalupe, um, which is just about 100, and, I think it's 150 nautical miles off the coast of Mexico, um, oh. northern Mexico, and they found they found out that it was like a shark breeding ground, great white oh. shark breeding ground. So, and the visibility, it's it 
no other place on earth has visibility like those waters you can see clearly for a couple hundred feet oh sweet um so while you know south africa of course is a big place for seeing great whites the thing is the water tends to be a little bit murkier there so you know you don't have nearly as good a visibility but out in mexico yeah you can see them for you know a good good 100 to 200 feet on average and um you know, most of the sharks, when I was there, most of the sharks were, I think all the sharks were males. Yeah. I saw about yeah. 15 of them. And the females, it was, it was like August and the females had not come in yet to, you know, again, it's a breeding ground. So the, the males were basically just hanging out, waiting for the females to arrive. That's funny you say that because I know there's an app out there. It's a, uh... It's a shark tracker altogether, and I think now they're putting some sea turtles in it too. But I noticed on the Atlantic coast, nearly yeah, yeah. Us, all of the females are here, and all the males are there on the uh, west coast, mostly in the Pacific. So I'm wondering, are we like a breeding ground here? Do they have their pups around it right here? Yeah, if I recall correctly, and I'm trying to remember where, but there's somewhere somewhere on the Atlantic coastlines that they believe that there is a breeding ground for. For great whites over here um there's definitely you know pockets of them uh in terms of breeding spaces but on the on the pacific coast it's definitely seems to be this whole guadalupe and how i mean seeing that majestic animal in person how exhilarating is that oh it's it's fantastic and you know the funny thing is is I, I really had no fear of the animal itself. Mm -hmm. I, um, it, what was more alarming to me was actually, was, that was the first time that I had ever done any diving. Oh, so, okay. yeah. So I, you know, it was just that, that weird sensation of putting the, putting the mouthpiece in and like putting my head underwater. It's like, Oh my God, I can breathe. Um, <laughs> that was just weird and unsettling. So that took a little getting used to. Um, and then, you know, the pressure and all the things you're kind of having to deal with while you're under there, but you know, you're sitting in these cages and the most remarkable, I mean, most of the sounds that you hear are really just from, you know, your, your respirator and bubbles going off and, and yourself breathing and, and you, what's so alarming and kind of amazing is here's this, you know, 3000 pounds animal cruising through the water and you can't hear a thing oh wow um, you you know you're we're all we're all sitting in the cage and we're kind of scanning around and looking and you know looking at each other and looking around and and then usually they're like the person in front of you you know their eyes will get really big and they'll start pointing behind you and you'll turn around and here's this you know massive you know jaws kind of critter coming right up behind you it, it it starts humbling you really quickly because yeah. you're like, wow, this thing can, I, I wouldn't know if this thing came up to, you know, want to make lunch of me. Um, <laughs> I, I would never know. Well, yeah, that too. Cause I mean, like you said, your size, you're six, four. So very rarely are you probably intimidated. You're probably always the intimidating presence. So what did it feel like yeah. once to be in front of something so much bigger? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it certainly, with uh and sharks are pretty much the largest predator that i've i've seen and certainly you know great white sharks are the largest amongst those mm -hmm. um so that that's definitely very humbling now when i've gone on other types of safaris you know with the sharks you're in a cage so i didn't feel too uncomfortable like i was pretty secure with the cage right um i don't i don't know that i'd want to go outside that cage but uh I felt, you know, I felt okay when I was in the cage, pretty safe. Now, some of the other safaris I've done, like tigers and, and some of the stuff in Africa, um, you know, when you're in a Jeep or whatnot, you're not, you're not behind bars. You're not behind anything. You're, right. um, that is a little more intimidating because then you're talking about like with tigers, you know, you're talking about a approximately 600 to 700 pound cat that will just walk right past the jeep 
And generally they're, they're telling you is, you know, what the guides are telling you, the Rangers are telling you is they, uh, they don't, as long as you're in the Jeep, you're okay. For the most part, uh, they don't seem to, these animals don't seem to recognize what you are until you get out of the Jeep and start walking around. Um, okay. if you were to get out of the Jeep and start walking around, then they would go, Oh, you have legs. So you're a, a real thing that, you know, they might potentially want to investigate. Um, as long as you're staying in the Jeep, they pretty much will ignore you. Um, but you know, that it, it is a little alarming, a little, a little unnerving that it's like, wow, I'm, I'm, there's, there's nothing to stop one of these cats from just coming right into the Jeep and <laughs> taking everybody out. Exactly. Now, do you have to worry about like perfumes and colognes and stuff like that too? Would that sense the uh, animal as well? You know, I, that never really came up. Um, yeah. They, I don't recall them ever mentioning anything about that. I mean, a lot of those, a lot of those trips are, like glorified camping trips anyway i mean you're out even though you know okay. i was staying at some pretty nice lodges and you know nice facilities and whatnot but i i, I think the the fur, furthest thing from my mind was um dressing up and <laughs> yeah. putting on anything other than you know just half the time you're getting up in the mornings at about five or six usually before the sun comes up comes up and that's usually when most of these animals are active mm -hmm. um, and still hunting. And then um, you come back in the afternoon and because they ever, almost everything after they've eaten wants to go take a nap. Right. Um, and then they take you out again, usually about five or six o'clock in the evening. So you're, you're pretty much doing all this stuff either at dawn or dusk. Yes. That was the perfect time where the animal can actually prey on the the week right yeah. um did you say it was just tigers or did you see any lions as well yeah yeah um obviously in india i saw uh tigers and i got lucky on that trip we saw 15 individual tigers which is apparently pretty rare um so just got very very lucky on that one when in africa i managed to do pretty well uh i was in kruger national park primarily in south africa and uh saw quite a lot of lions um one night in fact we we drove out quite a ways out and saw a bunch of rhino which yeah. was great and some elephants and we were making our way back and it was dark at that point and we kind of, kind of came up over this crest of this hill and the headlights on the Jeep like uh, lit up all of these eyes that were on the road, like <laughs> dozens and dozens of eyeballs. And we stopped and the, the ranger took out a spotlight and kind of shined it around. And uh, we were sitting in the middle of this massive pride of lions. Um, it's only one adult male that we saw and a lot of females right. and a lot of cubs and uh we just sat because they were all sitting in the road we couldn't really go anywhere couldn't do anything so he just turned off the jeep and we hung out and we watched this pride for about an hour um we were we were supposed to report back for dinner <laughs> but we uh we ended up being a bit late that night so <laughs> didn't want to be dinner right <laughs> yeah <laughs> But it was that was that was really because our, our guide even at the time he was saying is like I've you know I've been working here now for several years and I've never seen a I've never seen this pride of lions and I've never seen a pride this large. Wow. Um, so well, we, just, we just sat. <clears throat> it's probably rare that you saw the male too because I believe the male sleeps like 22, 23 hours out of the day and the female does most of the hunting. Correct. Yeah, yeah. The males have a tendency to. Uh, to, to sleep a good chunk of the day while the while the ladies are out um hunting or or tending to their young um the uh the other the other thing that magical thing that i i got to witness was being kept up <laughs> one night by uh 
a mating couple of lions they 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 parked themselves underneath my balcony and <laughs> <laughs> my room and lions um as they're when they're reproducing uh they, they pretty much go at it about every 20 minutes for two to three days oh geez <laughs> um and they're loud so <laughs> <laughs> I gave you some stories <laughs> to share. <laughs> but yeah, I got to uh, I got to see a lot of on that trip in particular. I got to see a lot of very rare things. Um, we uh, got to see a black rhino, which oh. are some of the rarest yeah. of rhinos. Uh, we saw actually a, a black rhino mother and its calf. Um, and usually when you're going into the parks like that, they are very, very careful about particularly rhino sightings um, mm -hmm. just because they're being poached. Right. Um, and elephants as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I went also on that trip to Botswana, which has one of the largest elephant uh uh game parks in the world i think there's i want to say there's it's like thirty thousand elephants or something like that in this in this park um so yeah the the place was just overrun with elephants <laughs> so have you done any other um safaris and other animals anything like that any uh conservationalist stuff anything like that i've uh i when i did the safari stuff i kind of started applying some of the knowledge that i learned in in the in you know africa and india to things when i came back home to the united states i uh I did a, you know, I did a bunch of road trips since I was on the West Coast. I, I did a bunch of, you know, Western sort of road trips and go out to like Yellowstone and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it really dawned on me that if I wanted to see any of the animals that you're going to see in Yellowstone, I mean, other than, you know, bison, because you see bison everywhere. Right. Um, if you wanted to see things like bear and wolves and, and whatnot, the they're predators and they operate, you know, predators the world over kind of operate the same way. Um, on land, they tend to sleep largely during the day and, and hunt um, in the uh, in the mornings and, and early evenings. So, so I sort of applied that logic and just got up really stupid early and, and uh, managed to see, you know, quite a lot of of bear and wolves and, and things like that in Yellowstone. Um, and also, I you know, I learned a lot about wildlife photography on those trips, just, you know, how to different camera settings and how to, how to use the camera correctly and how to track things that are moving fast. Uh, um, and and how, how to startle the animal too, right? What now? And how not to startle the animal too with the flash. And yeah, things. yeah. Um, Things like birds, you know, birds are very uh, interesting and challenging to capture in flight and get, you know, good clear shots of. So I, you know, I would learn how to photograph birds that were flying around. And uh, I have since, because I, I live here on Pulaski Square in Savannah, the last several years we've actually, and it's usually this time of year, uh, we have hawks that nest up in the the oak trees here and uh they they're, they're teaching their young to hunt so huh. um so i i noticed this several years ago and kind of ran outside you know grabbed my camera and ran outside and managed to start getting some really incredible footage of hawks hunting here <coughs> Excuse the there. <laughs> uh, so sorry about that. Um, so 
I guess let's back back to the acting. Um, so anybody that was starting out acting, do you have any word of advice for them? Um, always start, of course, with training. Um, and there's such a variety of training uh, out there in the world. Uh, when I started, really the only way that you, you know, and I wanted to originally, you know, I wanted to go into film, mm -hmm. but at the time it, it wasn't like you would just start in the movies. You didn't, you know, there weren't training programs necessarily for film acting. Um, it was theater and it was the general idea was at the time was that you would usually start out training in the theater and you would go off and do theater for a while and and either make your way down to LA and start auditioning there for films and television, or hopefully maybe you might be working in a theater somewhere and you know cross your fingers and hope that uh, somebody would discover you on stage, um, which still happens you know, right. periodically. Um, but it's much, much more rare nowadays like it's just we we now have we now have programs and uh training programs for okay. film acting specifically so you know it, it, it's be aware of kind of like what you might want to do um if you want to do theater you know study theater you want to do film study film um and there's also, you know, beautifully because of technology nowadays, even if you're out somewhere remote, you know, you don't necessarily have these programs in your town. Um, if you have an internet connection, a lot of people teach classes these days, um, particularly film acting classes, uh, teach that stuff online um which is fantastic right so you know for the first part is learning you know learning basically the art of acting the craft right um, yeah the craft and then the other big thing that should never be ignored is the business side of this industry okay um because if you don't understand the business uh it's very difficult to get much traction right um if you want to do it professionally um and luckily there's a lot of info um again particularly online but lots of great books and a lot of people do teach classes these days in that strictly focus on business and marketing and how to you know how to present yourself and then you know there's classes and auditioning specifically because auditioning is a little bit different than just standard performance um so you've got all these factors that you need to kind of learn so the big thing to start out is you know train 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 always be training um and uh the big one of those big things you know, we we study so often or you know we tend to think that so much of this is transforming yourself into a different character um which is true you 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 are taking on um a different sort of identity but the reality of most film acting is that really they want to see you they want to see what unique qualities um you have so you can't be afraid of you know know yourself really well and don't be afraid to show that off okay um and that you know that is what excites most of the people in the industry more than anything is just how good you are at showing off those qualities that are uniquely you okay so i guess in a way you're saying just be yourself and find a way to bring your character to life be correct yeah yeah i mean you, you know you 
you're always going to use even if the character you're playing is you know diametrically different you know than what you are uh, as a human being there's still always going to be components of you in there right um, so you know, like Meryl Streep I think it was sort of described it as you you turn up certain portions of your personality and turn down other portions of your personality when you're playing characters and that that is very true it's like there's always every everything is inside of all of us for the most part you know right good evil we all have you know weird thoughts at times that you know pass by you know it's all in every one of us so what an actor really gets good at doing hopefully is learning what parts to sort of what parts of their personality to expose at what times this i guess it was like saying if you're like the most evil person and of course i mean well the character is the most evil person but you're the sweetest person in real life Basically, you got to find the motivation to say what would happen to that person to make them so evil, right? Portray it that way. Yeah, I um, since I play a lot of really kind of horrible people, um, you know, first and foremost, I, I I shall I should say that you you don't want to judge these characters. You don't ever want to judge any character that you're playing um, huh. because that just creates that creates a block. Um, because you know a, a villain, you know protagonist does not, you know, or antagonist I should say, uh, does not think of themselves as the villain for the most okay. part. I mean, it's it's very rare in literature or most films that evil characters are sort of a hundred percent aware that they're evil. They 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 don't really think in those terms usually. Um they're usually thinking that what they're doing is just and right and correct for some reason. Okay. Um, so you can't, as an actor, you can't really judge that behavior because that character probably would not be judging their own behavior. They, they would find a reason like why you have to, you have to put yourself into that headspace. Like, why would I, why would I be behaving this way? You know, what would have caused this? And I'll, you know, I'll go back with some characters I played and kind of create a little, you know, chart of like how, what would have happened to have created this really, all these horrible quirks, you know, why, why, you know, is this person so abusive to other people? Why? And luckily, if you study psychology, I mean, luckily there, there are roadmaps to right. a lot of it. Um, so I will go back oftentimes and study bits of psychology and figure out, okay, what quirks would have occurred in childhood or, um, or along the way. And I often describe the characters that I play, the people that I play, whether they're good or bad. Um, I play damaged people. And what I mean by that is we're all, we all experience trauma. We all experience damage at some point in our lives. It's usually the damage that occurs to us in life, you know, some terrible event or whatever, or, you know, something traumatic, something, something profound like that, that usually causes us to make a change and a significant change. And some, you know, in in the case of good guys, usually, you know, they've decided to go off in some positive way. In the case of bad guys, they usually dwell on that trauma and turn it more inward and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, approach the world that way. So one way or the other, the more interesting for me when anytime I'm exploring a character is I always want to try and figure out where was the damage that occurred to this person that created the person that we see, you know, at the beginning of the, the film or in, and in some cases, and, you know, definitely in a lot of films and television and whatnot is that, you know, you're actually witnessing 
some of that damage. You know, you might be witnessing the event that causes them to go do, you know, be something else. Right. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's like, you know, watching today, catching up with uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, yeah, I need to watch that last episode today. <laughs> yeah, it's like Vader, you know, Vader is just a fascinating character just yeah. because of his trauma because of yeah. his damage i mean he there's a there's a human being inside of that shell yeah. and that's you know i think that's the reason why he tends to get rated as one of the best villains is it's not because we can't relate to him it's because we actually relate to him really well exactly well i mean i was talking to a couple of friends and you know they were panning the uh, prequel series and I was like, the whole reason that it failed is because you knew the big plot twist going into those three films. You knew sweet little lovely Anakin was going to turn bad no matter what. So you, you lost the big surprise, and that's why those prequels didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, they probably... The prequels suffered from a lot of <laughs> a lot of issues, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there's definitely that element is that the, the element of surprise was kind of gone. It yeah. was, I mean, I suppose it's interesting to some degree to kind of see the progression of how it happens. Um, yeah. But at the and, same time, if you go into the sixth sense and someone tells you the ending right before you go into that theater, it's not the same. Yeah. Yeah, they mentioning the sex sense too is like, oh, that was funny because I, I, when that film came out, I had so many friends that were like, oh, it has this big twist. So yeah. of course, I go into that thing like, I'm re- I'm like watching like a hawk. I'm watching for like what's what's up, and a- as it turns out, I noticed one. Well, one thing I noticed because I had been a costumer for a while, I noticed Bruce Willis's clothes like never change. Yeah. So either he has the plainest wardrobe ever, or he is dead. Yeah. Well, that and, and go back noticing it too. Eye contact. I know that's a big thing with you actors. There is never eye contact with his character at all the whole film. And you don't yeah. realize it until you've seen that twist and you watch it again. You're like, holy crap. The other the other subtle thing that they did that I kind of picked up on was that anytime that there is a uh ghost or spirit in um close proximity is there's usually something red on screen. Okay. Um. Yeah, that was that was subtle, but yeah. it's it's there. Yeah, I think most people noticed the whole the cold breathing air thing with coal. You noticed that right off the bat. Yeah. But yeah, I worked at a AMC Projectionist at the time, so I premiered that one. Also, we got the ring like two months early too, and we knew that one was going to be a big hit. Because actually, one of the guys that worked there which was at Florida State. He was a film major, and he already had seen the ring do in Japan, so he knew how huge that was. And yeah, that was like yeah. a good month of like, oh, yeah, we know this is going to be a huge film with that ending on it. <clears throat> so um, I think I've cut you about an hour. So um, I thank you for doing the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, I know my listeners are going to get to wealth of knowledge. So thank you for doing this. Um, do you have any social medias or anything you'd like people to know about? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I I have a pretty public presence on Instagram, um, and you can you know explore some of my some of my life that way. Um, and also, uh, obviously, you know, IMDb and and those things you can keep up with uh, what I've got going on in the theaters. Okay. And for any. Um casting directors in here that might be listening to this episode uh, is there any way for them to contact you any casting agency anything like that you'd like them to know about uh yeah i mean my agent is uh east coast talent in rome georgia here um uh so yeah you can get a hold of me through through them okay well thank you and um have a good night yeah thank you very very much Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe so that you may get all future episodes. Like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching for The Opinionated Optimist.
Thank you.